Before we launch into the penultimate episode of the Clayton Christensen tribute series with Afosa Ojomo on this brilliant book, The Prosperity Paradox, I want to thank our new sponsor, Gate One. With offices in London, New York, and Dublin, Gate One is a business transformation consultancy who partner with some of the world's leading organizations to deliver meaningful change. A great fit for this show. To find out more about how Gate One can help you or start a conversation, visit gateoneconsulting.com. If you go back into the 1850s, uh, America was a desperately poor country by any measure. America was more impoverished than Bangladesh is today. But America became prosperous. Taking Clay's class um, and working with him over the past few years has, has really changed my life, um, changed the way I see the world, and has given me a lot of hope, which is why we wrote this book. Though we usually don't think of it this way, in the 19th century, the United States was desperately poor. Poorer than some of today's underdeveloped economies. Considering where it once was, America's transformation into an economic powerhouse is just extraordinary. As we will explore today, at the heart of America's transformation story is the same force that has driven economies worldwide from poverty to prosperity, market creating innovation. Global poverty is one of the world's most vexing problems. For decades, we've assumed smart, well-intentioned people will eventually be able to change the economic trajectory of poor countries. From education to healthcare, infrastructure eradicating corruption, too many solutions rely on trial and error. Today's guest reveals a paradox at the heart of our approach to solving poverty. It is a pleasure to welcome the co-author of that book. The book is The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. Ifasa Ajomo, welcome to the show. Hi, Aiden. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. It's great to finally have you, man. You're a very, very busy guy, and it's been hard to pin you down. I've been chasing you for absolute months. But I thought we'd start, before we talk about the book, about your relationship with your co-author, in particular, Clay. So Karen Dillon was a guest on the show before. We've talked about how will you measure your life. But Clay wrote this about you and Karen. Working side by side with Karen Dillon and Afosa Ajomo, have been a delightful experience. We wrote this book as a team, though we each acquired key roles. Afosa's ability to master and synthesize what academia and practitioners have already brought to this puzzle, both deep and wide research, and then understand where our thinking here fits, has been foundational to this book. The role of Afosa has been to simultaneously understand the heart and minds of Africa, Asia and the Americas, both past and present, and bring that knowledge to life, first in his own research and then on these pages. As a partner and a collaborator, he has exceeded all my expectations. I thought I'd tee you up with that, man, because that's what Clay said about you. But I know you have a lot to say about Clay because he absolutely changed your life and the course of your life. I often struggle to talk about him. Uh, because uh, he, as much as he's gone, I feel like he's still with us, still with me, you know. And I think 
People talk a lot about legacy, um, but there is no greater legacy than changing the way people think, the way people see the world, and the way people live their lives. Um, and so in many ways, um, I know he's no longer here, but there are so many decisions I make on a, a daily basis that my time spent with him impacts how I think about those decisions. Um, for example, you know, when I get done with work at about 5, 5.30 every day, there's always a nagging feeling in me um, that I should stick around and do a little bit more, spend an extra minute. But then it turns out I've got two young kids, uh, 22 months and, and one, 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 one year old, 12 months. Um, and every minute, every extra minute I spend working is an extra minute I'm taking away from them before, you know, we, we have, we, we, we put them down for, for, um, for bedtime, um, at about seven. So just that simple thought that every day as I'm, as I'm closing out my computer, I, I, I walk away from my office. I think about Clay, um, and what he would want me to do in that situation. And he changed my life. Um, yeah, he changed my life. I'm with you, man, on it. I told you before we came on air and I told Karen this as well. I had that experience where even though I didn't have the proximity you had, the legacy he's left is these lenses that he talks about so often, he's given them to people through the work, through the books. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this series was I did the same thing. I, I was working too much. I was putting a lot of work and it's it's important. And I like my work and I, I liked my work. But then it made me realize that I'm doing this in order to provide for my family. But by doing the work, I'm not seeing my family and I'm drifting. And the whole idea of my resource allocation was in the wrong place. And, and that was just a game changer. But I, I want let's build on that because what you're doing now is you're you're definitely continuing on as legacy. And and one person in his life, that was very special It was his daughter, daughter, Anne, who you work very closely with today. And maybe we'll tell people what you do today, because you do work for the Christensen Institute. And Many people don't know that that work not only continues on Clay's legacy, but a lot of the projects and the the ideas and the the things he wanted to fix in the world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Clay had wanted to uh, <laughs> write um, a book that tackled this problem of global poverty for a long time, and he wanted a place to incubate a lot of the ideas. Um, a lot of the ideas that he felt would help people lead better lives. And the place to incubate it was the Christensen Institute. I mean, before the Institute came about, Clay had founded a, a consulting firm, uh, an investment fund. Uh, he was obviously a professor at Harvard Business School, had a research uh, center there. Um, and so he had all these things in his life. Uh, but he felt the place that would give him the most freedom to really explore, create new ideas and apply them to complex social issues were what was a nonprofit think tank. And so with one of his former students, Michael Horn, he co-founded the 
um, the institute wasn't actually called the Clayton Christensen Institute. Um, when it was found that it was called the Intersight Institute, um, and and much to Clay's, uh, what's the word? Um, I mean, you hear the Clay Christensen Institute and you think, well, the, the, you know, he named something after himself. Well, he 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 was not um, all for that, I guess. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't quite his decision, anyways. But the, the Christensen Institute, we take the theories he's developed. And we apply them to complex social issues, education, uh, for example, um, healthcare, uh, and the most recent group that was started, it's 2016 or so, was Global Prosperity, where we're taking these ideas and we're saying, how can they help us understand how to create prosperity for billions of people across the world? And so that's a lot of what I do. Uh, still today, I, I lead that group at the Institute. Uh, we write articles, um, we write blogs, uh, we travel and speak about these ideas. Um, our book, The Prosperity Paradox, was an, um, uh, was an output, um, that, that we put out. Um, and, you know, we, 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 we are just really trying to help whoever will listen. Um, see the world through a, a different lens to see that there is a lot of opportunity out there. And there's a lot that innovation can do to help people lead better lives. It's interesting. I think people might not know that we, we've talked about this before. Clay wanted to be a journalist. That was one of the things he wanted to be a journalist. Yeah. But he also wanted to work for the World Bank. Yes. And this was before he became a, a Harvard professor. And it's interesting that they wouldn't hire people at the time. But maybe you'll share that little nugget with our audience because this is this idea of helping solve the prosperity paradox was actually in him from the very, very start. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, Clay uh, was in Korea. Uh, I'm going to get the years wrong, and so your audience shouldn't quote me on this, but I want to say the late 60s. So I'll just say the late 60s was in Korea. And if you remember, Korea um, had just sort of emerged from the, 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 that was the Korean War, um, and the country was desperately poor. Um, the late 60s or the 70s, so forgive me. Um, but just emerged from the war, and the country was still poor. Um, and Clay was taken aback by the poverty, the level of poverty in Korea. That's where he served as a missionary for his church, um, the Latter-day Saints uh, church that he was a part of. And I think after that experience, he just decided, I, I got to do something about this. And when you look around, the the poverty powerhouses, if you will, the World Bank. I mean, there's it's no bigger poverty place than the World Bank. So he wanted to go work there um, after he did his Rhodes Scholarship, um, which he majored in, if you will, like economic development for his Rhodes Scholarship uh, um, at, 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 at Oxford. So, um, he, he wants to go work at the World Bank, but for whatever reason, they weren't hiring Americans, um, that year. And, and, um, and the twists and turns of fate, he did a few, few things and ultimately became a, 
Harvard Business School professor. Um, and, you know, the audience probably knows he worked at Boston Consulting Group. He uh, started a company with a bunch of MIT professors. Uh, so Clay Clay did a few things before. Um, he went back to get his PhD and, and, and ultimately became a Harvard professor. Um, but his, his, his track was, was, um, you know, after Korea was, he wanted to go fix poverty. He wanted to like help people. And it's fascinating because, um, you know, we didn't know this at the time, but the last book he wrote, um, was about, you know, the, could I say the first thing he loved, if you will, right? Uh, which was to, to go help people uh, with his brain and his ideas. And so I feel so honored um, and so grateful that I was able to collaborate with such a beautiful, beautiful human being um, on this important work. And he saw something in you, man, as well, because that's pretty clear. I, I was reading in the preface, for example, he, he talks about how there was there was something in you and the lenses that you applied from the course you definitely put into place and what's interesting is so we'll start to get into the book's content now so one of the key concepts is the idea of push versus pull so we try to push solutions i i thought of actually you mentioned michael horn and we discussed this when we were talking about disrupting class is that the, the concept of cramming, trying to cram an existing business model in, you know, a new disruptive innovation into an existing business model. And I was kind of going, that's what we try to do. We, we try to take our, our idea of what a culture or an institution should look like and then try and cram it and make it look like another one, kind of this idea of best practice. And you experienced this firsthand because you, you straight away wanted to go and fix a problem that you saw. And as Clay said, you you recognized that poverty plagued some countries and you wanted to do something about it. You set up a little charity yourself and you tried to push the solution and you found out firsthand that this doesn't happen. And you were inspired by a book that Clay mentioned as well, The White Man's Burden. And this was Professor William Easterly's attack on Western efforts, efforts to aid impoverished countries. And it's really important to understand these concepts, push versus pull, and then also your inspiration and your firsthand experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I'll, I'll just tell the, the quick story on what happened and then the push-pull uh, model will become clear. I started reading about poverty, economics, and, and development, and I was struck by it. I mean, it changed my life, changed the way I think, um, and changed what I wanted to do, uh, right? I mean, uh, yeah, I, I was at that point in my life, I was a young engineer, wake up every day, and I was just thinking about myself, my life, what I wanted to do with my life. After I started reading about poverty, I started thinking about people living in poverty, um, the vast majority of people in the world who didn't have access to basic things. And I knew that's what I wanted to focus on but I didn't know how. Well, much of the solutions and successes I read about were people starting nonprofit organizations. Um, and I said, I'll start one. I'll start a nonprofit. I'll ask friends and family for money. And I'll go in and, and fix poverty. 
I even started an organization called Poverty Stops Here. That was the name of the organization. <laughs> Anyways, one of the first things we did was built wells in poor communities. Um, you know, I am yet to meet anybody who decides to build a well and somebody says, what's wrong with you? That's not nice. You know, don't do that. Um, that's such a nice, noble thing to do that I suppose I got blinded by the niceness of it, and I didn't think critically about whether it was a wise decision. So I went into a poor community, we raised enough money, had someone come and build a well, and we were happy. We took pictures, excited, and then a few months after the well was built, the well broke. And that's when we began to realize, oh my gosh, there's a problem with this model. Because there was no mechanism to fix the well. There was nobody there available to go in and fix it. Um, as that happened, uh, our tendency at the time was to just keep keep, keep doing it. Because really nobody was asking, right? Is the well broken? Is it still working? Once you take a picture that says the well's going, um, you're, you're good to go. Um, <laughs> Anyways, um, we built about five wells, um, our nonprofit, until we, we stopped after well five because um, we just could not keep building wells. And ex like, and we knew they were going to break because we knew there was no mechanism to fix it. And so after five wells, we stopped. Um, and that's when I decided I got to go back to school to learn how to, how to do this better because clearly that's not working. And what we ex what we experienced with our well building small nonprofit was really a microcosm of the larger development industry. Metaphorically speaking, and literally, a ton of well intentioned, intelligent, smart, good people are running around the world building wells, but there's no mechanism to keep it going. Um, so they push these wells by, by way of water wells, schools, hospitals, infrastructure, roads, bridges. They push these things into communities that are not ready to absorb them, that don't have the mechanisms to fix them. But when you push them in, right, you, we take pictures, we celebrate that, and we say good things are happening. But over time, you see people's lives are not really being transformed. So say we, we, we you know, I got to do something about this. I was fortunate to meet Clay in business school. And that's when he, you know, started telling me about this idea of push versus pull and said, what if we think about it differently? What if instead of going in and just focusing on the need and the lack and how poverty always shows itself as a, a lack of resources, we instead think about it from the standpoint of what, what jobs are people in this community trying to do and how can we create a market around that? Because if we create a market around what people are trying to do, that market pulls in all the things that it needs to survive. And as a result, it has staying power, right? We, we don't need to continue to stay involved to fix every little 
infrastructure, every little well, every little thing. Like it has staying power. And just that concept of looking at it a different way, focusing not on, you know, you need wells, you need schools, you need all these things, and asking, what is the purpose of this thing? Is it connected to a market? Does it pull stuff in? That changes the game. You know, one example we talk about in the book is how a company that sells, believe it or not, instant noodles. Um, so Americans would, 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 would know ramen noodles or, um, you know, Asians, Indonesians, Indomie noodles. Um, so, so Indomie noodles is what the company sells. They look at a place like Nigeria, like with all the problems the country has. Well, what are you doing? Like going to sell noodles? There's so many other problems. We we need water, electricity, roads. But they were able to build a noodle market in the country, and that market has pulled in so many things into the economy. I mean, I'm talking education. It's pulled in infrastructure distribution, logistics, jobs, tax revenues, right? And that's the difference, the fundamental difference between push versus pull. When you push, you're just focused on solving an acute problem, which is often connected to symptoms of a deeper problem. When you create a market that pulls, that has way more staying power, and that can lead to prosperity. It's kind of like when you, when you have children, I, I was thinking about like how a couple of kind of, I think in metaphor and analogies a lot. And, and I was like, it's kind of like, do you, do you do it for the kid or do you teach them how to do it? And, and it's not even teaching them how to do it. It's letting them figure it out for themselves. So maybe asking questions and, you know, provoking, getting the right answer. And then there's a pride in doing it. And then They've built this muscle that's useful for for the rest of their lives because that's really your job as a parent is like prepare them the best you can, give them all the love you can in order to so they they can go and live a full life themselves. And I was kind of I was kind of going it's kind of it's a kind of a similar place and it's it's even the same for an organization that when you help pe- when you bring people together and and they figure out how to solve it themselves, there's a pride and th- there's an ownership of the output then instead of bring in the consultants, which is kind of the push model. The mis- here's best practice. This is what that company's doing. And you're kind of going, yeah, but we're a different company and we do things different around here. But um, y- there's a couple of, um, there's a couple of important concepts that are lenses that w- we need to put on for our audience before we move on. Cause I'd love you, you mentioned there the Indomie noodles example, but there's a great example of Mo Ibrahim in Africa and Celtel. Before we tell that story, it's probably important to describe a couple of concepts. So one is the different types of innovation that are necessary to understand here. So we have efficiency, we have sustaining, and then we have what Clay used to call before this book disruptive, but you call it in the book new market or market creating innovation. These are really key concepts. And then also maybe after that, we'll talk about non-consumption. We've talked about that before on the series, but again, just remind people with these lenses again, and then we'll tell the Ibrahim story. So you're in for a treat here. So the, the three innovations, non-consumption, and then I'll come back to you for Ibrahim. Absolutely. So 
When many people think about Clay Christensen, they think disruptive innovation. Clay Christensen gave the world that beautiful gift. Uh, but I think one of the other things he gave us, um, and certainly gave me, was a really simple way to categorize complex things so that we can see the world a lot clearer. Now, you, you hear the word innovation and Man, so many things come to mind. Like, what is innovation, right? In fact, Clay, I remember saying one saying that's one of his, the, one of the words he hates the most because what does innovation mean? And so he said, if we're going to talk about innovation and focus on innovation, helping people, we need to be very clear that as people read this book and what we write, they understand what we mean by innovation, not what they mean, what we mean. Um, so that we have a common language, which is something he was very passionate about, just having a common language and common way to frame problems. So the three types of innovations, they help us better understand organizations and countries even. Sustaining, sustaining innovations are first. Sustaining innovations are essentially when you make good products better. They are improvements on existing products, uh, they add features, benefits to things that the market already consumes, the market knows about. So when, you know, Apple brings out a new iPhone, uh, puts a new camera on there, uh, facial recognition, better processor, uh, AirPods, AirPod Pro, new car, a uh, new model of different products and services, right? Those are sustaining innovations. Those innovations are targeted at people who can already afford existing products on the market. They tend to be substitutive in character. In other words, you are not necessarily expanding access to the market. You're just selling um, to people who can already afford. So they substitute an old phone for a new phone um, or, you know, people who, you know, would buy a, a Toyota um, Prius wouldn't buy a Camry, for instance, right? Um, but you have to be able to afford a hybrid or a Camry. So the, the, the point is you're focused on what we would call the consumption economy. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So that's sustaining innovation. They're very important. They keep companies vibrant. It's an exciting place to work with. You're using the latest technologies, latest marketing efforts. I mean, it's, it's wonderful, but from the standpoint of long-term growth, uh, they don't quite do much. Um, if, we, if you look at what's going on in the streaming world today, you see a lot of investment in sustaining innovations. The mar market's, for the most part, kind of saturated. And so, you know, Netflix brings out a new, uh, a new show and everybody watches it. And, and then Disney Plus or, or Hulu. Uh, but those are sustaining innovations. If you didn't have Netflix or you couldn't afford it, they're not fundamentally doing anything to, 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 to target customers that can't afford their products. They're just trying to get as much share as they can from what I would call the streaming pool. Important, but we see its limitations. The next type of innovations are efficiency innovations. Efficiency innovations tend to come in a couple of shapes and sizes. They are innovations that make good products cheaper. Uh, so when a company says, I'm going to outsource operations from one place to another or leverages automation uh, or 
or uh, if you think about resource extraction industries, they are incredibly rife with efficiency innovations because you have a commodity that I don't set the price of oil, of gold, is set on a global market. And so for me to be able to increase uh, my um, my profits, yeah, I need to be able to cut my costs. And so that's what efficiency innovations tend to help us with, to help us cut uh, cut costs. They free up cash flows. Um, and so they're good in that regard, right? Uh, in fact, many companies in the in the tech space uh, in you know late 2022, early 2023, are going through efficiency innovations. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, in his last uh, I think last earnings call, said uh, this is going to be the year of efficiency. So they're laying off a lot of people. Why? So so that they can go into new markets? No. So they can cut costs, return money to the shareholders, and you know, essentially have their quarterly earnings calls go go well. So that though that's the purpose of efficiency innovation. It's not bad. It's just you just know what the th- thing is for. Um, but then the last type of innovations um, are market creating innovations. These are innovations that target people who cannot afford existing products on the market. It transforms existing products, which are often complicated, expensive, uh, into products that are simple and affordable. So many, many, many more people can access them. When you create a new market, you're not targeting people who can already afford. You're not targeting um, uh, simply reducing cost. You're going after what we call non-consumption or non-consumers, people who in their wildest dreams would never be able to afford a product or a service. Uh, if we think back to Henry Ford, when he was, was was thinking about the car for the average person, that's an example of a, a market-creating innovation, the Model T. Uh, we think to the, the evolution of computing, for instance. You know, we had 70, 80 years ago, mainframe computers that cost a million dollars. And then you have mini computers that cost a hundred thousand. And then you have personal computers that cost a thousand. Now you have smartphones and some places around the world cost a hundred dollars, right? You can see that it's not as if society became wealthy enough to afford mainframe computers. No, it's that innovators created new markets and not just new products, you know, they create a new product is different. I mean, they created new markets. They had to figure out how to mass produce computers, how to uh, mass market the fact that people who have never used computers, life seemed to be going well. Now, like all of a sudden, we can't live without compute computers. Um, how to distribute these computers, how to service them. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 and a new market is, 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 is such a beautiful thing. It's a new ecosystem. And so essentially that's, that's market creating innovation. These tend to be at the core of long-term sustained prosperity. Uh, they are the drivers of this long-term sustained prosperity. Now, no innovation, right, is good or bad. I, I want to be very clear. Sometimes as a company, you need to double down on efficiency innovations. Sometimes you need to invest in more in sustaining innovations. But simply understanding the different types, 
what types of activities uh, each of them might incentivize is key to building a company that stands the test of time. Uh, and I think Clay helped us understand that. The, the last thing um, that, that occurred to me several months ago as, as I was thinking about uh, the, the, the different types of innovations is, you know, when you think about a sustaining innovation, the focus of many people working on that innovation tends to be the product. And so it is, we're going to release this new version of something. Uh, we're going to add these features to this new version. It's going to be better than the previous version. It's going to be better than the competitors. The focus is on the product. When you think about efficiency innovations, the focus tends to be on the process. It tends to be on, okay, how were we uh, solving this problem in the past? How were we managing payroll? Okay, let's maybe get this new software package that could reduce um, uh, the, the time that the uh, that we spend managing this. Let's get this new robot that helps with automation, this new process that focuses on the process. When we talk about market creating innovations, the focus tends to be on people. It tends to be on access. It tends to be on who doesn't have access today and how can we get them access? That's what drives the strategy. Not that product and process are not important. I mean, product, process, those are incredibly important. But again, what's the focus of everybody sitting around the conference table in the conference room talking about uh, the, the innovation activity, talking about uh, where, where they invest, expenditure? That's a simple sort of model to get a sense for what are we as a company focused on? Are we focused on people who don't have access? Are we focused on process so that we can reduce cost or um, uh, and, and increase efficiencies? Or are we focused primarily on the product? Again, I think good companies focus on all three, but or good companies are aware of all three and are cognizant of them, but the, the underlying focus um, of, 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 of market-creating innovations is on pe people who don't have access. It's so important, not just for the prosperity paradox, but also to understand that as a common language with inside, inside organizations. I, I often see that that even the the misunderstanding of what, what those terms mean within an organization, even highly educated and well well uh, versed people in innovation don't know the difference of those things. And sometimes they think, they're on the same page with the other person they're talking to, and they're on entirely talking about totally different things. They're kind of we are being innovative, and you're kind of going, yeah, but that's efficiency. That's not market creation. And, and I think this is where the audience for our show, in particular, get very frustrated. Ifosa is they they are creators. They're curious. They're spotting new opportunities, market growing opportunities that need. The money saved from the efficiency to be reinvested and create new markets and that gets huge frustrations but this brings us to well how do you spot that and this is where the skill of non-consumption and in particular we talked about this we had bob mesta on the show before we talked to about to karen about this we talked to michael about this michael horn it's such an important aspect to be able to spot non-consumption and as 
as Clay wrote about, it's about spotting both struggle, but also the desire for progress. And if you think about countries with problems of poverty, there's a lot of struggle there. And if you can see that struggle, you can create new markets. And that's what Mo Ibrahim did. But maybe you'll tell us your version of non-consumption and then share the Mo story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, non, non-consumption uh, is, you know, really when you have a, a lot of people in a place uh, who want to consume something uh, and they just can't. There are barriers that are preventing them. Um, you know, Scott Scott Anthony's book, um, I, I believe you, you had him on the show, uh, Innovator's Guide to Growth. He talks about four main barriers to consumption, right? Money, access, it's just not around you. Um, skill, people need a certain type of skill to be able to consume in time. It just takes too much time to consume. Um, there, there are several other, uh, uh, you know, barriers. Um, space, right? Where, where do I put this thing if I buy it? Uh, or culture, all right? So, like, if I buy it, will, will I be accepted within my sphere? I mean, we saw that happen with the uh, the, the vaccines, uh, right? COVID vaccines. I mean, it was free. A lot of people, you didn't need to pay for it. But, you know, people, when you live in a cultural context where, you know, we don't believe in vaccinations, well, that's that's a barrier that prevented a lot of people who might have from getting vaccinated. So understanding non-consumption is, is critical. Um, and then w- w- when I think about that in the context of, you know, an emerging economy, a poor country or you know, a low middle income uh, nation, um, I think I, I try to separate non-consumption from the innovation necessary to tackle non-consumption. Because what I am prone to do is just go on cruise control. I go into a place and I say, they're too poor. They can't afford this. They're not educated. Or they don't even know what this, this product will do for them. Well, I'm already selling myself short or the people short because ultimately I am I haven't yet understood their struggle. Uh, I am matching the innovation that in my mind exists in my context with their own problems. And that's not right. And so what we have to do is first understand non-consumption. What is it? Does it exist? Are people struggling? If the answer is yes, then there is opportunity. Now, we don't know yet what the solution to the opportunity is. We don't know what's going to solve it. We, we don't know. But that I remind uh, uh, people a lot, executives and uh, my students when I teach, that is the exciting thing about innovation. If we knew what the solution was to every challenge, then that's not innovation. That's called replication. <laughs> That's not innovation at all. And so being comfortable with the uncertainty of, wow, I don't know the solution to this problem, but there is certainly a problem here. That's where the innovative innovative juices start flowing. And that's exactly what happened with Mo Ibrahim. You know, he's working in London for this 
I mean, well, he, he had actually started his own consulting company, this uh, telco consulting company, incredibly brilliant guy, built a big, big company, very successful. And he's looking at, uh, you know, setting up all these telecommunications infrastructure in all these parts of the world. And he's looking at Africa, it's just dark. Nobody's going there. It's like you just fly over. In America, we have we have a thing called the, the flyover states. It's not a very nice thing to say, but you sort of go coast to coast. You fly over a lot of states in, 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 in the U.S. Well, Africa was the flyover continent, right? We're going to fly over Africa. We're going to get to where we can make these investments. He's like, why is anybody looking at Africa? He's looking at the struggle. He goes there, looks at the struggle. People cannot communicate. You got to walk miles to go see family. You, I mean, it was just, it made no sense to him. At that point in time, if he took the solutions that he was developing all across the world and said, let me just push this onto Africa, would never have worked. Would never have worked. But he said, there is non-consumption here. Well, I'm saying he said, but he said there's opportunity here. And I don't think he used the language non-consumption, but there's, there's opportunity here. I don't yet know the solution, like what's going to fix it, but I know there's opportunity here. And so he starts investigating. And it is through the innovation of trying to get the mobile phone to the average person across Africa that he was able to develop uh, the pay by minute so that you don't have to pay a monthly subscription. You pay uh, every minute. Was able to get inexpensive mobile phones into the country. Was able to uh, figure out how to get, build cell towers in places that didn't have the infrastructure, the engineers. Would put generators by the cell towers so that they could power it up. I mean, you, you, it is, it is, that is the innovation that was necessary to get mobile telco service across Africa. And by and large, till today, that's still what's going on. You know, you look at the continent of Africa and, 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 you know, I could argue it has not quite fixed, right? It's, what, what, what do I say? Infrastructure issues. Over half folks on the continent don't have electricity. And the ones that do is intermittent at best. Um, you know, you look at politics, in the political environment, it's not like we have, you know, transparency up the wazoo and no corruption. Um, you know, you look at poverty. Uh, poverty rates are not uh, dwindling, at least not in the way they did in, in, in China and, 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 and we're seeing in India and Vietnam. So it still has many, many challenges. But despite these challenges, Ibrahim and other innovators were able to go in there and create incredible markets that now are producing wealth for many people. I mean, you have uh, upwards of two to three million people working in this sector. Uh, this sector, tel telco sector, is providing billions of dollars annually to governments um, by way of taxes. You have you 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 have the economic impact. Um, uh, upwards of a hundred to two hundred billion dollars. Uh, I mean, it's just incredible when you think about it. But it started with somebody identifying non-consumption and not saying, "Oh, there's no way that the Africans said they're just too poor. There's no way they can." No, 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 no. That is not the mind of an innovator. You know, the mind of an innovator sees possibility. They see hope. 
Um, and Clay gave us good theories to help guide our investment. So it's not blind hope. It is it's actually hope that it's like, I know this is going to be a hard road, but it's also possible, right? And that's a lot of what I want to do. Uh, people who consume our work at the Institute or it's, it's just really, there is hope. You know, I, I talked recently that to be poor is a terrible thing in the world. It's a terrible thing, but it's not the worst thing. To be poor and to not have hope, that could be arguably the worst thing in the world. Um, and 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 we, we need to let people know there is hope. There really is. This is a difficult road. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, you know, go to a country and just root out corruption and build your infrastructure. And, you know, that's not helpful. <laughs> um, but there is hope. And going through market creation, as difficult as it is, I think gives many of us the best chances of success. Well said, sir. And, you know, there's a there's a great story I heard. I, I can't remember where I heard it. But I, I when I'm telling my own students or running workshops, I use this as a story to go, when you change, n not what you see, but how you see what you see changes like Wayne Dyer, the great Wayne Dyer, he said, change what you see and, and what you see changes. And the way I think of Clay's work is change how you see and what you see changes. And there's this story about two salesmen, shoe salesmen, and they go to a, a country that no one wears shoes. And the first salesman calls back to his boss and he's like, boss, no one wears shoes here, no opportunity. The second salesman calls back to his wife, honey, pack up the kids, we're moving out here, no one wears shoes, seize the opportunity. And, and it's just a mindset. And, you know, we had Hal Gregerson came over here, we recorded together talking about the innovators DNA. And many people think, oh, that's an inherent trait. And it might be, but it was honed in people because we're all we're all creative. We're humans, we survived, we were an endangered species at one stage, we, we can do this. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the reasons I absolutely it's one of the reasons, if also I want to share this work, but there's there's a deeper message in the book with this is that if you help people solve their own problems, it's like a rising tide lifts all boats. And, and I have a little quote here from the book that is so meaningful. You said, when innovators create a new market targeted at a large population that has, has historically been unable to afford the product, non-consumers, the innovator must then hire many more people, not only to make the product or service, but also to get it to new customers. The bigger the non-consumption, therefore, the bigger the potential market. And the bigger the market, the bigger the impact. This dedication to market-creating innovation often establishes the underlying infrastructure, including education, transportation, communications, and institutions such as government policies and regulations, and other components of many of today's thriving societies. This activity creates a virtuous cycle in economies that further fosters the development of more new markets. That is that is the goal. And the examples you give, I, I'd love you to pick one of your favorites from history. So we have, you mentioned Ford a couple of times, 
you mentioned also Isaac Singer, which is is a really interesting one. But then you also explore Japan and Korea and countries like that. So you mentioned, for example, Samsung, which is started off. People don't remember this. It was a dried fish company. It started off as, but but <laughs> but right. through creating all that billions of revenue for the company it has to invest back in the country and then it invests in institutes to create people to educate people because oftentimes you have to educate people in order to drive consumption and this is what we don't see it's the halo effect of the non-consumption economy that is so important i'd love you to share this absolutely i mean I, i think this is why it's so powerful uh you know we can look back at when a law was instituted or created. And we can do research and say before, you know, 1965, uh, you know, these people couldn't vote. And then after 1965, they could vote. What happened? Uh, before 1980, uh, there were laws that says, uh, uh, you know, this class of people couldn't buy houses. After 1980, what happened? And so, When we think about development and prosperity, it's really easy to think about it through the lens of institution building, right? Laws and and systems that are, that are in, in place in society. But then a question emerges and says, how did we get there? You know, if you've ever been part of a law creation process, you know, you don't just wake up and have politicians who wake up on the right side of the bed and they they create laws that are good for people. People fight for them. People lobby for them. People push. People struggle. Um, And it is in that ability to struggle and fight for certain laws that you actually, if you peel back the covers, you see you see markets being created, people getting jobs, people getting uh, wealthier and, and, and more confident in their ability to even to, to fight and to create laws and to lobby and so on, it increases. That's, that invisible thing is what we hope to shed light on. And so you, you look across countries. I mean, you mentioned a couple, um, in the U.S. One, one that I, I loved was Bank of America, for instance, right? Um, Amadio Giannini, he created a bank for what he called the little fellows. They were hardworking immigrants coming into the U.S. in the early 1900s. And he said, we need to figure out a way to get these people banked because banks were, like as in most uh, uh, poor middle-income countries today, are for people who are rich or people who are part of the formal economy, as it's called. He figured out a way to get a bank to the average person. Um, so many immigrants from Poland, from Italy, from different, uh, typically Euro- European countries at the time, and gave us many of the innovations in banking that we still use today. Uh, one of them is branch banking, uh, where you're creating different branches and making them available to people. So he said, we're going to bring the bank to you, not have you come to the bank. Um, that was a huge innovation. And many people in banking still see Amadio Giannini as sort of the father of modern day banking and did more for the banking industry than, uh, than any, anybody else, at least for the common, uh, man. Um, so we, we go cross continent and we look at, 
Japan after World War II. Uh, you had the Japanese government set up uh, what 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 what's called MITI, um, Ministry of um, Investment and Technology. Oh, I forget the acronym, but MITI, uh, MITI. They set it up. Uh, and it's supposed to help really rejuvenate the economy. Well, there's scrappy young uh, entrepreneurs, um, Akio Morita, um, and um, his co-founders found they, they, they set up Sony. Um, it was a different name at the time, but they set up Sony. One of the first products they made and is a, was an electric blanket that would catch fire. <laughs> on occasion. <laughs> so Sony is now this amazing innovation powerhouse, but that was one of the first products uh, that, that they made. And you could just see, when you read the story of Sony, you could see how they were always on the lookout for non-consumption. You know, one, one of the things that, that um, led them to, to, to make the um, portable, uh, you know, portable, um, cassette player or record record re recorder was um he was on the train once and saw a guy playing around with his calculator it's like who the heck plays around with a calculator and said there's something here and they look at that and then you you, you create a market you innovate well when you do that you got to figure out a way to tell people they need portable record players and it, i mean it's a whole system that you're creating and it's so beautiful it's really really uh amazing you know, as I'm thinking about this and and, and, and you know talking to you, um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't. Man, I I've started to think about sort of a prosperity paradox part two. I started thinking about a follow-on book um, that really delves into the detail of market creation more. That really helps us understand what is it. What is the process of market creation? How do you finance market creation activity? What kind of leaders do you need to lead market creation? Uh, and I got to tell you, the more I delve into that project, the more I learn, the more I just see how beautiful market creation is um, and how necessary it is. Uh, I think much of the problems in the world today, not all, but much of the problems in the world today are connected to this lack of market creation. Um, you know, when I think about as a, a, a survey that was done with the some of the wealthiest countries in the world. So this isn't poor countries. You know, we're talking France. We're talking Italy. We're talking the United States um, in Japan as a powerhouse wealth, wealthy countries. Asked parents. Um, do you think your kids will have a better life than you? Like financially, will they be better off? Vast majority said, no, I don't think so. And I think that is due to the fact that we are over-invested in efficiency and sustaining innovations, which limits access to people who already have so we're not creating new markets, new jobs, new systems that can absorb the mass of people. If we create new markets, more people will have access to be able to buy homes, access to health care, better education prospects. You know, 
I don't want to just say market creation will is a silver bullet for everything, but I mean, I do think it 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 helps explain many things, not everything, but many things. Um, <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, man, I, I, I found it this fascinating thing from ants, right? So if you take a, a family of ants, right? So a hundred ants and you put a piece of information like a slice of apple in, into the middle, only a, a very small proportion of the ants will go like something like 10, 20% will go and investigate it. And then others will go and start investigating other parts. And And the reason is they don't want all the the whole entire population to die if the piece of apple was poisoned or anything like that. But also, it's wired into some some of the population to go exploring the whole time. And I think that if if you're just focusing on efficiency all the time, you not only alienate that proportion of people who are inherently creative and curious about the world and looking for non-consumption, even though they don't have the language of that, but y- you'll be more fulfilled then as well. And I think that's like you you see it with second generation wealthy families that often the second generation is has a crisis of of what 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 am i about in the world i have no purpose and and if you know if you can find ways to let people feel like they're making a difference and that they're actually building a, a country like you know working for someone like samsung it was one of the big stories in in ireland where i'm from in northern ireland harlan and wolf created the titanic and the titanic as we know sank and what i found most fascinating is i went to the i brought my kids to the museum up there up in belfast and what what i found the saddest part was there was playing recordings of how people reacted when it sank and it was their hearts that sank it was people kind of going oh my god we we built this thing and oh you know the feeling that they were they were had they built this absolute beautiful vessel and it sank and and that's what for me you're doing is helping people build a a, a meaningful product uh, build in a build hope as you said and that's what this is about man that's that's what really this is about let's share one last example we have one last example to share with people and this is a surprising one as well so mexico is a hotbed for efficiency innovation Ford went there famously, as you mentioned in the book, lots of countries go there and they try to milk for the low wages in, in Mexico. Their workforce is cheap workforce. And you say in the book, when you look at Mexico's economy, not through the lens of investment dollars, but through the lens of innovation, a pattern becomes clear. Many companies in the country, domestic and international, have interest have invested heavily in the efficiency innovation. But in what should be a vibrant economy, flush with resources, there is a disappointing lack of market-creating innovations. And as Mexico painfully illustrates, as over-reliance on efficiency innovations can only take an economy so far. In Mexico, uncontrolled diabetes is the leading cause of death, amputations, blindness, and in some places, it is the leading cause of suicide. This tees us up nicely for a brilliant example. So this gentleman we're going to talk to you about now, he couldn't get into Clay's course in Harvard. So Clay, to enable him to try on the lenses, then offered the course to MIT. That's my understanding of the story. Maybe you'll clear it up. 
But this is a gentleman called Javier Lozano, and the story is a magnificent one. Yeah, Javier Lozano is an incredible, incredible man. Uh, I've had the chance to meet him on a couple of occasions, and um, he's wow, wow, he's wow. Um, he signed up. Well, you can cross register for courses uh, in the Boston area. So if you're at Harvard, you can cross register for courses at MIT and Tufts and so on. This particular year, Harvard wasn't allowing cross registrants uh, into Clay's course. I'm not sure why, but Javier Lozano found himself in a situation where he couldn't register. Clay gets word um, there seems to be demand from MIT and decides, I'm going to go teach the course at MIT. Uh, so he creates something, goes to MIT, teaches the course, and it's there he meets Javier Lozano. And Lozano is just blown away by the theories in Clay's course, jobs to be done, disruptive innovation, the idea of non-consumption, and begins to think about how to solve the big problem of diabetes in Mexico. Well, he grew up with a mom who has uh, diabetes or had diabetes, so struggling with it, and just saw how uh, she, she became uh, challenged by the disease and, and, and almost like uh, tired of trying to manage or treat diabetes. I mean, it's incredibly difficult to, to, to manage your diabetes in, in any country, much, much less Mexico. Um, costs quite an arm and a leg. So about a thousand to two thousand dollars a year to manage the disease. You have to see many healthcare professionals. So from, uh, podiatrists, if your feet are having problems to endocrinologists, uh, um, 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 who manage your, your hormone, hormone levels, um, to eye doctors, um, just different uh, professional nutritionists, psychologists. There were just so many people you had to see and you had to manage all these visits. And then you, you, you imagine an economy where many people are independent workers or part of what the, 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 some people would call the informal economy. You'd have to take time off of work. So if you're not working, you're not eating. It's not like you have health insurance. I mean, just very difficult. Javier looks at that and says, I need to figure out how to solve this problem. Um, after Clay's course, he thinks, do I set up a nonprofit? Well, you're always going to be beholden to what the funders want if you do that. So he didn't talk to Clay about it. And Clay said, you know, as you do this, make sure you don't go to the experts to ask them what they would do. Um, he didn't appreciate that at the time, but after, as he tells the story, he's like, that was one of the most important insights. So Javier goes back to Mexico, starts to investigate, starts to learn, starts to ask people, what are your struggles with managing this disease? What's a what's a price you're willing to pay to, to, to help you manage this? Gets a lot of data, understands the struggles, and finds people are willing to pay roughly $250. Like, okay, can I create a solution around this amount people are willing to pay? Well, chapter two comes uh, Clinicas de la Zucar, uh, which is... It's essentially sugar clinics. And this is a chain of diabetes health centers that anyone who subscribed to the uh, 
the Javier's to Plinicas can, can go to. Under one roof, you have all the healthcare professionals who will help you manage your diabetes. Uh, he prices it at roughly $250, something that majority of people can afford. The convenience works because you don't have to go from one place to another, paying a bunch of different people different amounts. All your health records are in one place. All the professionals you see are in one place. Um, he locates the uh, clinics in places that people would typically go, like next to a grocery store, uh, so that one member of your family is doing shopping and you can go in, get seen, um, and just really is thinking, what is the average non-consumer of diabetes care struggling with and how can I create a solution that brings them in? Fast forward to today, it was 10 years ago or so he started. Now Javier is the largest private provider of diabetes care in Mexico, has created a solution that has not only brought non-consumers in, but has also brought in um, uh, wealthier people, uh, people who see the service as even better <laughs> than, than what they have and are able to consume that. Uh, many of the people who told Javier 10 years ago when he was starting out, no way, so never work. Um, you're not going to be able to manage diabetes. They're now copycats. They're now setting up their own version of Clinicas de la Zucar. That's what happens when you create a new market, right? You, in a way, are doing something most people thought was just not possible. But after the market is created, we can't imagine our lives without it anymore. That's the beauty about it. Uh, it requires, for lack of a better word, faith. It requires faith that you can see something that many people hope for, even when there's not a lot of evidence that you know you will succeed or it can be done. And 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 I think Mark, Mark, I mean, I, I still believe market creation is one of the most beautiful activities of humanity. Like I, and this story of people now being able to access diabetes care from an organization doing it in a sustainable way, um, giving Mexicans hope, creating prosperity, giving jobs. I mean, that's such a beautiful thing. And it started because Javier Lozano believed he could do it, right? Um, Anyways, it's just, you know, this is not easy. The road aid in here is not an easy one, but I, I, I like, I know it is, it is the path. I believe it so strongly. And I've seen, you know, you read history and look at how countries become prosperous, how companies become relevant. It doesn't start country, company, industry, person. No, no. It is person, company, industry, country. It starts with people. And it doesn't start the other way around. It starts with people. Um, and, and when it starts with people, there's always hope. Beautiful, man. And by the way, that brings us full circle because it started with Clay in this instance. And even for Javier, he took the course. The course gave him the lenses. Then he saw things differently. 
So we we need to be cognizant of that. I, I have a final quote that I'm going to give, and then I'm going to let you close today's show with your final message to our audience about Clay, because you kind of you nailed it there, man, with the message of the book, by the way. But um, I have this quote, and I, I just wanted to share with you, when, when I was reading the book as well, the way my mind works is I write, uh, I write an article loosely associated to each book that I cover each week. And the article I wrote or I started to sketch out when I was reading yours is um, was inspired by the book, but also the the idea of Field of Dreams, that movie with Ke- Kevin Costner came to mind. And the whole idea, build it and they will come. Because new market innovation for me is build it and everything will come. The whole infrastructure will rise around it. And there's a beautiful scene in that movie while he's walking through the cornfields and he sees in his mind this this baseball field and he keeps hearing in his mind build it and, and they will come and that for me encapsulated so with that in mind and that at the lens ne- next time you look at that movie put on your lenses of your book <laughs> and watch the movie man it will totally inspire you so the quote i have is towards the end of the book clay says if you think prosperity for all is not possible, think about how South Korea changed in his lifetime. So you mentioned he was there in the 60s or so. And think about what a different place it is now. It was deemed an economic basket case. And according to NYT, it's reached prosperity faster than the US, Britain, and even Japan. Okay, so you say then, while the path to prosperity will look different for different countries and will ultimately depend on their current economic circumstances, you believe that the prosperity paradox can become the prosperity process, one that is sustained by a continuous commitment to innovation. We do not know the answers to all of the development puzzles in our world, you say, but we do hope that our book offers you a set of lenses through which to see the world. We hope that through some of the principles, stories, and theories we've explained, you can begin to ask yourself and those around you the questions that can finally help us solve the seemingly intractable problem of global poverty. Mic drop from me, man. Absolutely beautiful. Over to you to to close today's show, man. And before you do, where can people find you? Because you are a prolific writer and lots of the articles that relate to the book and beyond and a lot of the principles and the theories are all available on your website so where can people find that yeah i mean if you go to christiansinstitute.org um like a lot of what i write is on there um i um i, I mean I, I have my own website as well afosaojoma.com um, but I, I would say for, for much of what I write, just, you know, the Christensen Institute is home. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose at the end of the day, um, you know, life is much more about, um, the, the, the moments we make count and, and, um, and, and an ability to flourish, to improve, to be better, and to have hope. Um, I think the numbers are important, right? Um, and that's economics help us with, helps us with that. But if we lose sight of what really matters in life, 
which is this idea of flourishing, this idea that tomorrow will be better than today, uh, then we lose sight of a lot of things. And what we try to do in the book is, is, is marry the two together. Is what we try to do with our research is give people hope. We know that life is hard. We know that it's not getting easier for a lot of people. But if people have hope, we think um, they can accomplish so, so much. So, you know, Clay gave me hope when I tell the story of how I met Clay and what we've done together. He gave me hope that Nigeria, Africa, Asia, Latin America can become prosperous. And so I'm hoping that, you know, many of your listeners and folks who are in other parts of the world can can get some hope too, uh, because life lived with hope is a lot more beautiful than life lived without. Co-author along with Clayton Christensen and Karen Dillon of The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. Afosa Ojomo, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Aiden. Thanks again to our new sponsor, Gate One, with offices in London, New York, and Dublin. Gate One is a business transformation consultancy who partner with some of the world's leading organizations to deliver meaningful change. To find out more about how Gate One can help you and to start a conversation, visit gateoneconsulting.com.